T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. 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 Okay, engine Today's guest on Cosmic Perspective Radio is a veteran of five space shuttle missions, including three Hubble Space Telescope servicing missions, and is the recipient of NASA's Distinguished Service Medal. Dr. John Gruntsfeld, welcome and thanks for joining us on Cosmic Perspective Radio to discuss the 29 years of the amazing science done by the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, thank you, Andy, and it's really a pleasure to be on Cosmic Perspective. It's hard to believe that it's been 25 years since the Hubble received its glasses, you know, its first Hubble servicing mission, and 10 years since the last servicing mission that you participated in. Would you please tell our listeners a little bit about your three Hubble Space Telescope servicing missions and some of the challenges that you and other astronauts had? Well, I'd love to. And, you know, let me just give kind of a Hubble perspective The amazing thing about the Hubble Space Telescope, unlike any of our other space telescopes, is that it was designed to be serviced and upgraded. That was part of the original concept uh, when it was decided that it would go on the space shuttle. And, of course, that's what enabled us to correct the spherical aberration, the blurry mirror, uh, perfectly. And, in fact, I think it's well uh, understood that Hubble can now see more clearly with the fix because of the spherical aberration that it would have been had we launched with you know, the correct mirror. And so ever since then, uh, we've been able on these five servicing missions to put in new instruments, fix things that go wrong, uh, to allow Hubble to unravel the mysteries of the universe. I had some part in all of the missions, but I got to fly on the last three missions. So I flew to the Hubble in 1999, 2002, and most recently in 2009, in fact, 10 years ago, I was on orbit with wrenches and tools fixing the Hubble Space Telescope. And really, it's the ability to bring up new cameras, new charge-coupled devices, the hearts of these cameras uh, that allow us to make the images and to do spectroscopy that have advanced so far on ground-based telescopes such that we've been able to bring them up to Hubble. So Hubble, even to this day, has basically state-of-the-art detectors in state-of-the-art cameras, especially uh, what we installed 10 years ago in the Wide Field Camera 3. I can imagine that the technology has changed, you know, from 
The first servicing mission was 25 years ago, and 15 years later, all the advances in technology and ideas that people had to make the Hubble so much better than it was. Absolutely true, and and the best example is that Wide Field Camera 3. Uh, When we first launched Hubble, and these Wide Field Cameras are what take some of these spectacular images, you know, some of the deepest views of the universe, and we've just put one together from the Legacy Program uh, that includes 16 years of observations, not continuous, but put together uh, in the southern constellation Fornax, looking at these deep fields. And so it's an area about the size of the full moon, and it has something like 265,000 galaxies, everything from, you know, er very primitive, barely resolved galaxies just 500 million years after the Big Bang to galaxy formation when star formation was at its peak to, you know, some of our neighbor galaxies. Uh, Really an amazing sample that tells us the whole history of the universe. But to get that, we had to build these new detectors that are 16 megapixel cameras. uh, And not only in the visible, but now in the near-infrared. And so we have two channels in that wide-field camera that are able to see from the near-ultraviolet uh, all the way through the near-infrared, which is you know, really showing us a lot more of the universe than we've ever been able to see before. And that's because that technology was available 10 years ago. And it turns out it's still state-of-the-art. And that's one of the great things about Hubble is that because we're above the atmosphere and because the technology is so good, we're essentially noise-free. And of course, for astronomers, the key is signal-to-noise ratio. That means how much do you see of the stars and galaxies compared to the amount of static that's in the background. And since we have almost no static, the images are nearly perfect. I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about the infrared and ultraviolet and that we can actually see through dust clouds that we can't see through uh, in invisible light. And that's a big plus for the the Hubble, we've been able to see deeper. Is that correct because of those things? That's right. Because of the expansion of the universe, and we know that the universe is expanding because we see the red shift of the light, the shifting because the galaxies are moving away from us, like a train moving away from us. Uh, in Bridgeport, we're able to hear, you know, the as the train goes by. The same thing is true for galaxies. As they go by, the frequency is shifted to longer wavelengths, And in the very, very distant universe, it's been shifted so much that ultraviolet light emitted by the stars as they were forming in the early universe are now in the infrared. And so these new cameras allow us to see deeper in the universe. And as you say, it's just not an accident of nature, but it's the physics that that infrared light can escape through gas and dust, that optical light gets scattered like the blue sky. And so we're able to peer into regions that we've never been able to see before. And one of my favorite studies that takes advantage of that is peering into the clouds of gas and dust where new stars are forming. And so we're able to, where the previous instruments on Hubble saw beautiful glowing blobs of gas in many beautiful colors, now we're able to peer inside and actually see those baby stars as they're forming. And one of the great things we're learning is that as those stars form, solar systems are forming almost immediately. And so baby stars and baby solar systems kind of form at the same time. Uh, One of my favorites, and I'm sure it's one of a lot of people's favorites, is the Pillars of Creation, where we can actually see stars forming in this dust cloud, this huge dust cloud. 
And, That's right. And, and previously, we were able to infer the existence of baby stars inside, but now we're actually able to see them. Do you have any favorites of yours? Well, I have lots of favorites. And there's a category of favorites, which is the first images that are taken after a servicing mission. And so in 1999, we went up, and it was actually a, an emergency mission of sorts because Hubble wasn't operating. It's one of the few times that Hubble dropped offline, and they called us and said, we need you to go to Hubble as soon as possible. And so we actually flew in December of 1999 over Christmas. On uh, Christmas Eve, I was doing a spacewalk. Uh, I saw Santa. Uh, he was waving at us and uh, might have left a little reindeer poop on the wings, but I'm not supposed to talk about that. But we were doing a spacewalk on Christmas Eve to bring Hubble back online. But you don't know whether you fix the telescope or whether we broke the telescope until the shuttle landed and we got the telescope working again. And those first images that come back after a servicing mission are the confirmation that we actually fixed the telescope. I'm glad to say that each time those images came in and they were more and more fantastic. So there's a picture called the Eskimo Nebula. looks kind of like an Eskimo with a fur surround around the face, and it's a planetary nebula. So it's a star uh, as it's dying, throws off its outer envelope, and then the starlight continues to illuminate that gas in, in beautiful colors. Uh, but it's confirmation that the telescope works. And so all of those images that we've gotten back, uh, there's two galaxies that are interacting called the mice. And it's just a beautiful spiral galaxy that another galaxy collided with. And they're doing a cosmic dance over time. And eventually those two galaxies will coalesce into one larger galaxy, after the 2002 mission, that image was taken, and it's just a, a fantastic image with lots of star formation, new stars being born, and, uh, and many, many beautiful images after this mission in 2010 uh, that confirmed that the new cameras were working. Having to wait until the mission was completed and, and you're back on the ground, there must have been quite a bit of anticipation. Well, that's right. You know, we know that when we put the instruments in, while we're still out doing the spacewalk, you know, we've put, plugged them back in, uh, the big team of scientists and engineers on the ground go ahead and turn on the power, you know, slowly to make sure everything's working. We check the signals, but it's not until you open the aperture door of the telescope and make an observation that you know everything really works. I'd like to talk a little bit about the actual servicing that you did. The Hubble Space Telescope missions were uh, a little more risky than other missions, and I know that on the, on the last servicing mission, there was another shuttle that was on the launch pad ready for a rescue mission if possible. But there were other missions. I think the first four did not have any, any backup for you. What makes the Hubble Space Telescope missions more risky than others? Well, the first thing to say is that any space mission is really risky. You know, you're sitting on the launch pad with uh, four and a half million pounds of explosive fuel, and at liftoff, it's an incredibly rough ride. And it's only eight and a half minutes from the launch pad in Florida to Earth orbit, traveling 17 and a half thousand miles an hour, five miles a second over the surface of the Earth as we orbit to match Hubble's orbit. But once you get to orbit, it's really a gentle ride. We're floating in microgravity to catch the Hubble. But there are lots of hazards of space. And in this most recent mission 10 years ago, we flew following the tragic loss of Columbia. And so to help close some of that risk, we had two shuttles. So when we launched to Hubble, 
on Atlantis, Endeavour was sitting on the other launch pad at the Cape, uh, just in case we got in trouble. Now, for the space station missions, if they launched and got to the space station, if there was a problem with the shuttle such that they couldn't come back, like Columbia, uh, you'd be able to hang out on the station for months while other space vehicles, the Soyuz vehicle, could come up and shuttle people down, for instance. But at least you have a chance, whereas on Hubble, you know, once we're up at Hubble, there's no chance of waiting for very long. So that's why we had the other shuttle ready to rescue us, just in case. But all spaceflight is risky. I recall some people saying to me, why didn't the shuttle just go to the International Space Station while servicing the Hubble if they had a problem? I don't think what most people realize is the shuttle uses so much fuel to get to the Hubble that it wouldn't have enough fuel to get to the International Space Station. Is that correct? Well, that's absolutely correct. And it's just basic orbital mechanics that the space station and the Hubble are in very different orbits around the Earth. The space station is highly inclined to the Earth's equator, and Hubble is more closely aligned. And it turns out that doing a maneuver from one orbit to another takes almost as much fuel as it takes to get to orbit in the first place. So you'd need a double fuel tank or something like that, and it's just not reasonable to do that. Nor can we move the Hubble uh, to the International Space Station orbit. And I understand that uh, you wouldn't have the docking ring that would dock you to the International Space Station if you had enough fuel. So I see why you had a little bit of a higher risk than most shuttle missions. Yep. And as a result, we also carried you know, a lot of extra gear in the space shuttle. So not only did we have all the parts we needed to do spacewalks on the Hubble and upgrade and repair the Hubble, we also had a whole kit so that we could repair the shuttle in case we had to come back. So we had you know, all kinds of goopy glues and things that we would be able to squirt onto the bottom of the shuttle in case our thermal protection system was damaged or there was a hole in the leading edge of the wing that we would have to patch. Uh, fortunately, we didn't have to use any of those. You are listening to Cosmic Perspective Radio with my guest, space shuttle astronaut Dr. John Grunsfeld. We'll be back to discuss the challenges Dr. Grunsfeld experienced during his several spacewalks to repair the Hubble and some of his personal thoughts on the Hubble Space Telescope's accomplishments after being involved in all five servicing missions. We're back to continue our discussion with Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission veteran, Dr. John Grunsfeld. So the space shuttle is going 17,500 miles per hour, and the Hubble is going at basically the same speed, but in a different orbit. So how does the shuttle get to the Hubble to service it? So we launch into an orbit where we're going ever so we actually the Hubble passes over Florida and after Hubble passes over Florida we launch and spend a couple of days catching up so we launch into an orbit that's slightly lower and slightly faster and so orbit after orbit we go around the earth 16 times a day each day we got a little closer to the Hubble such that on the third day we were only a few kilometers away and then Scott Altman the commander on the mission the pilot uh, was able to take the controls of Atlantis and using the thrusters on the shuttle just gently ease us underneath the Hubble. And basically by the time we were ready to grab it with the Canadian arm, uh, Hubble looked like it was motionless, just a, you know 20 feet away from the shuttle. You're both traveling at that speed, right. but you almost feel like you're standing still. Yep. And then we grabbed Hubble and we mounted it into a fixture in the payload bay of the space shuttle so that we could then go out and do spacewalks and crawl around on the Hubble. 
What were some of your most challenging things that you had come up with? I'm sure, you know, when you're, you're doing these things in a neutral buoyancy tank, I believe, in, in Houston, but when you're actually doing the repair yourself, I'm sure you ran into some problems. What were some of your biggest challenges? Well, on this mission, we were bringing up uh, the Wide Field Camera 3, the newest super-duper camera, and a special instrument to observe in the ultraviolet called the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph. And those are the types of repairs that we plan to do where you take out the old camera and it's just removing a couple of big bolts and you slide out the old camera and then you put the new camera in and tighten the bolts. But we also had two instrument failures uh, and one of them in particular, the advanced camera for surveys. And this advanced camera is the one that made the observations that allowed Saul Perlmutter, Adam Reese, and Brian Schmidt to win the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering the accelerating universe. And in order to, for them to win the Nobel Prize, now we didn't know that in advance, we had to fix the camera. But we couldn't bring a new camera up. We just didn't have the time or the space. So instead of doing just a simple swap, I actually had to cut a hole in the side of the instrument, take a panel off with little tiny screws, pull out circuit cards and insert new circuit cards. Now on the ground, that's a very reasonable thing to do. You know, normal technicians may be wearing a clean suit just to protect the camera, but in space, using the huge bulky gloves in a spacesuit, uh, you know, this was a huge challenge to figure out what kind of tools can we use to get access to those circuit boards so we could fix that camera. And uh, it, was, it was a very challenging task, and we invented a bunch of really cool tools. And, in fact, we have some short video clips now on NASA's social networking web uh, called Tool Time, where you can learn about the tools that we used. Uh, if you go to worldwideweb.nasa.gov slash Hubble and search for the Tool Time videos, you'll see those. But we invented a bunch of tools so that I was able in my spacesuit wearing what are essentially hockey gloves, was able to remove tiny screws in space and not lose any and pull out circuit cards. And, and we brought that camera back to life. So that was the most challenging task. And in order to do that, I practiced over and over and over again on the ground, even wearing the gloves, just so that my muscle memory uh, would, would carry me through once I got to orbit. You've got these tiny, they're just a few millimeter uh, size screws floating around in zero gravity or near zero gravity and, um, you know, how they're not flying away from you. But uh, I'm sure that was also the part of the challenge. But I'm amazed that you were able to take these screws out, put the new screws back in, put the new circuit boards in and, and repair it. There was a similar task on the mission in 2002 uh, where we had to actually turn Hubble off for the very first time in orbit, and that's kind of a scary thing because, you know, what if it doesn't turn back on? And we had to change out the main uh, switching box for all the power on Hubble. It was called the power control unit. But it was, again, something that was a fair amount harder than anything anybody had done in space with lots and lots of connectors and wires. And, uh, and in the meantime, Hubble is completely powered off. And, you know, some people in, uh, in the media called it heart surgery. You know, because we had to remove out this critical component. And if we weren't successful, that would have been the end of Hubble. And Hubble was kind of on life support while we were doing the, the change. This recent mission, and just 10 years ago, in fact, it was about 10 years ago today, I was doing the repair with those tiny screws. Uh, folks called that brain surgery. 
just because it was so small and delicate. Now that the space shuttle program has come to an end, NASA doesn't have any means of servicing the Hubble. And with the privatization of space, have any private companies expressed any interest in the Hubble Space Telescope repair mission? Well, the, the private sector means companies. And of course, those companies are funded by NASA, you know, many of them, to build rockets. Uh, and so SpaceX and Boeing are building capsules, but they're so far constrained to go up to the International Space Station, and that's what we want them to do. And hopefully this year we'll fly the first of those new capsules. So who knows, down the road, it might be possible to send one to Hubble. But so far we don't have anything that has the versatility and capability of the space shuttle. But in the meantime, Hubble is still doing great. Everything is operating. You know, we have had a few failures. We launched in 2010 with a new set of gyroscopes for Hubble. And the gyroscopes are really the, uh, the workhorse that helps us point the telescope, but also the weak points of Hubble, in that they have these little spinning tops in them that allow us to point the telescope, but because they're spinning, they're a component that wears out. And it was known even before launch that they would only last something like two or three years. And the technology has slowly improved, and that's why Hubble carries six of them. You need three to do the prime science, and so you have three plus three spares. Well, here 10 years out, we're down to, the, to three, the minimum set. Uh, that that we need on Hubble, and three of them have failed. So we're down half in 10 years. So we're doing pretty well. But it does mean that at some point uh, in the future, and hopefully it's not too soon, uh, we'll lose another gyro. And while we'll continue to do science, the science will be slightly degraded from the science we can do now. There'll be some things that we can't do and some places we can't look in the sky. And if we lose two gyros and we're down to one, then that further restricts the science but the really smart and clever uh, scientists and engineers who work on the Hubble have figured out that even if we have no gyroscopes, there's still some science we can do. But for instance, the, you know, these deep fields that just stare in one place for long periods of time, you know, we should be able to do even if we had no gyros. When you look at Hubble images and the accomplishments of Hubble, do you have any personal thoughts? You know, Hubble has done such spectacular science most of which are discoveries that we never imagined. Uh, and the science, of course, is incredible. Hubble was designed to answer some fundamental questions about the universe. How old is the universe? Uh, what's the expansion rate of the Big Bang? Do black holes exist? What's the life cycle of stars? And it, you know, it's excelled at that. In fact, it's been 20 years, roughly, that we've known that black holes are real because of the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph observations of the core of a, of a galaxy that contains a supermassive black hole. And we were actually able to measure the material spinning around the black hole near the event horizon. Uh, we measured the age of the universe, and we thought we could look back maybe halfway to the beginning of the universe. And we've gone almost all the way back of a universe that's 13.7 billion years old we've looked back 13.4 billion years and seen some of the earliest galaxies. We've seen the life cycle of stars. We've seen exoplanets. And when Hubble was launched, we didn't even know there were, well, people surmised that there should be planets around other stars, but we hadn't seen them. Well, Hubble saw them. 
And we actually made images of a solar system uh, with three planets orbiting the star, you know, again, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, of course, the discovery that our universe is not only expanding but accelerating. These are incredible things. But I'm convinced, because Hubble is still in such great shape, that probably the most startling discovery is still ahead of us. Uh, That's the science. But on a human level, I think one of the things that Hubble has done for us, because of its incredible capabilities, is that it's shown us that the universe is not just a lot of points of light, a lot of distant stars, that it's actually very beautiful. And it's because with these cameras that we've been able to put up on Hubble with the space shuttle servicing missions, we've been able to get cameras now that have the same kind of resolution, or maybe a little better, than the human eye does. And so we're now seeing the universe and experiencing the universe in all of its beauty the same way we experience our our lives here on Earth. And I think that's something that has really touched humanity. Well, I can tell you that uh, in more than 20 years as a NASA public outreach volunteer, I go to schools and, and libraries and museums, and I can tell you that nothing excites the public more than Hubble Space Telescope images and its accomplishments. So, Dr. Grunsfeld, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you and all of the astronauts that risked their lives to make this incredible instrument do great science for so many years. So thanks. It's been an honor and a, a real pleasure to have you with us today. Well, Andy, it's really been a pleasure to be on your show. And I just want to remind your listeners that the other great thing about the Hubble Space Telescope is that all of its images, all of the science is freely available on the web to anyone. And you can always go to worldwideweb.nasa.gov Hubble or at NASA Hubble and enjoy these images and, and even do your own science if you want. So thanks very much. Thank you. And I, I love what you said about that there's still uh, some other great thing that the Hubble's going to do. I can't wait to see the next great discovery. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cosmic Perspective is an Andy Paneros production.